0: This morning we're reading from Exodus chapter 17, the first seven verses. From the wilderness of sin, the whole congregation of the Israelites journeyed by stages as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. The people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord said to Moses, Go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will be standing there in front of you. On the rock at Horeb, strike the rock, and water will come out of it so that the people may drink. Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? This is the word of God for the people of God. So we live in interesting times with all the news and the spreading of this coronavirus, one we don't know very much about and are not sure how to combat. But it's a dilemma for preachers because we are ones who are always encouraging more people, come together, come see us, come be with us. And yet, right now, when we think about how to care for people, that's not the best thing to do. And so we decided to best care for the whole community that worships here as well as the larger Tulsa community that we should close our building. But it's really contrary to everything preachers do and think about doing. In terms of reaching people for Christ, this is contrary to those kinds of decisions. And yet we have to think about this increased risk that we must all deal with in these days. As I was working on the sermon this week, I was thinking of John Wesley, the founder of Methodism. He had three general rules for life together. You remember them? Number one was do no harm. We have to think about the risk to others and how our actions might impact them. And right now, we simply do not know how our actions might impact somebody else because there's no way to know who's been exposed or infected. But all this brings up this dynamic that the text talks about today between individual desires or impulses and the group's needs. Dr. Cindy Rigby was here just at the beginning of Lent at Boston Avenue. She is one of our great contemporary theologians. She's written a book called Holding Faith. In the book, she talks about the dichotomy operating in our culture that commit that pits community participation against individual freedom. She talks about the Godhead or the Trinity and how Christians think about God as three in one and one in three. So in fact, the way we think about God models both community and individuality. And she says, if we can understand that, we can understand that these two do not have to be in conflict, but can work together together. I want to read you a few sentences of what she writes in the book. She writes, On the contrary, to join the rhythm of the scandal of the Trinity is to keep moving back and forth between the one and the three, refusing to give up on the possibility that each can fund the other that is built into the fabric of creation itself. She says, We are made, after all, in the image of the God in which individualization and participation are perfectly in sync. She says, now this is not Star Trek, where the Borg comes and says, you will be assimilated, resistance is futile. That's not the way it is. We have a choice, but we do not have to see it as a conflict, as an either-or, or or pitting our community against individuals, or vice-versa. As we picked up the story today, we find the Israelites in the same struggle with Moses. There's this struggle between their need, which is a real need, they're thirsty, they need water, but also their interpretation of what ought to happen in the face of their need. They come to Moses and demand water. Moses interprets their demands as distrust of God, distrust of God. You can hear it. In verse 2, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? So he sees it not just that they're mad at him or demanding something from him, but he sees himself as a representative of God. So if they're questioning him, they're quarreling with God as well. But you can see and kind of sense this possibility that they're not only mad at him, at Moses, but they're about ready to break away. In verse 3 it says, But the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and livestock with thirst? They have this need. But can't you hear how they go to this extreme and all of a sudden instead of Moses being the leader that's led them out of slavery who's led them to freedom who's helped them be in relationship with this God who cares and loves for them all of a sudden Moses only idea here was to kill them was to bring them into a desert so that they could die. Do you see how extreme their response is? They are thirsty, and all of a sudden, Moses is a villain who's out to kill them. They have moved from a simple need to a very extreme interpretation of that. Moses feels like they're about to rebel. In verse 4, he says, Moses cried out to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. He thinks now his life is in danger. Now, you could interpret this just as a fight between a leader and the followers. But I think with Dr. Rigby's insight about this tension in our culture, and perhaps in this culture as well, between communities working together, making decisions over against individuals deciding something else needs to happen, that you can see the tension and the conflict here. But in this tension, this text gives us, I think, really deep insight. When we look at communities, we find they find themselves in conflict a lot. So what's the lesson we can learn from Moses and the children of Israel here? The text gives us two possibilities in, in terms of how people can respond to conflict or this tension. One is illustrated by people. Attack someone else in the group. That will solve the problem. The other one is illustrated by Moses. Rather than attacking back or degrading the people, Moses turns to God. Moses goes to prayer. Even though he's crying out and he has some fear, it sounds like, he turns to God. This really is a good lesson for all of us. When our impulse is to attack someone else, a better response is to turn to God first. So let's follow Moses a little further in this story and see what happens when he turns to God. Verse 5 said, after Moses cries out to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. So God's saying, even though you're in this conflict, go ahead. Go ahead, move into the future. And this, this promise comes in verse 6 from God. God says to Moses, I will be standing there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it. Strike the rock and water will come out of it. In your outline, I've put three important parts of just that one verse I want us to notice before we move on. The first one is that God reminds Moses that he is not alone. It is so easy when we find ourselves in difficult circumstances or in a conflict, or we feel like someone's attacking us, to think that all of a sudden we're alone in this, that somehow there is no community, there is no support, or there is no presence of God. It's easy to isolate ourselves in our own mind when we're in uncertain times certainly these people were. Perhaps you're feeling that now. It's easy to begin to drift into thinking maybe God is not here. Maybe God is not at work. Maybe God is not present. Maybe I've got to solve this on my own. But our text this morning, this story reminds us, as God reminds Moses, that he is not alone. We are not alone. But then the second thing is, is that god still has a role for moses to play right he says take your staff and strike the rock do something take some action take a step in faith so number two is follow god's leading or act in faith do something proactive do something positive do something productive even in difficult circumstances we can take a step in faith We can continue to know that God is with us and God is leading us and we can follow God's leading. And then in the last part of verse 6, after he tells Moses to strike the rock, God promises and water will come out of it so that the people may drink. So God's still going to respond to the people and their need or their complaint. So the third point is here, remember that God cares and provides for you god cares and provides for you even in times that are uncertain i had the privilege of going with a group of people from boston avenue a few weeks ago to the holy land one of the places we visited was in the very northern part of israel we were staying around the sea of galilee and one morning we got on the bus and we drove Oh, about an hour, an hour and a half north. We stopped at several places in the northern part of the land there. But one in particular, the guide said, we're going to see the headwaters of the Jordan River. Now, we'd already seen the Jordan River where it was flowing fully, but this is at the very headwaters. So we walk into what looks like to what we would call a national park or a state park, and we're walking through the trees along this path. And you can see a stream of water. But as we get closer to the very spot where the Jordan starts, you know what we saw? Water coming out of the ground. Or water coming out of rocks. It looked like the water is just flowing right out of the rocks or out of the ground. I thought of this story. I've always kind of thought of this as magic or supernatural, but that's probably not the best interpretation of this text. Our visit there, once again, the terrain or the geography, seeing it with our own eyes, can teach us that God works sometimes through creation. And sure enough, if we would have wrapped the rock, water would have bubbled up. God cares and provides for us, not always in a magical or supernatural way, but a lot of times through our relationships, through our community, or through creation. Dr. Rigby, in her book, Holding Faith emphasizes the importance of our own experience or participation in the Christian life as a way to deeper understanding. Again, she's talking about the paradox of the Trinity. She says just too often we think of it like a math problem to be solved or a puzzle or a riddle that is something we can't work out. She says that's a wrong way to approach this. We should approach thinking about the Trinity. That's what it means in terms of our relationship with God, a relationship in which we can live and move and have our being. Let me read to you a few sentences she writes about this. She says, In trying to explain the mystery, rather than participating in it, we have dropped the theological ball. Trinity becomes a colder, more calculated doctrine. Unable to figure out the mathematics of it, we might throw up our hands and cry, I don't know, it's just a mystery. She says, when we do this, we have actually betrayed mystery for mystification. Then she says, the mystery is not the solution to the puzzle of how one and three can be made equal. The mystery we are invited into is rather that God is at once both equally one and three. What might look like a puzzle or a riddle is actually itself an answer, a statement of who God is. It requires attention that in turn requires we create time and space for reflection and contemplation. And that brings us back to the season of Lent. It's a season that invites us to be introspective, to go deeper in terms of contemplation and reflection about our lives and our relationship with God. Our text reminds us today that we're not alone, that God is alive and at work, and we can follow God's lead. We have a role to play. We believe it also reminds us that God cares and provides for us. But did you notice in the text It never describes water coming out of the rock. We have the promise. We have the instruction, but it never describes it. Read the text. It's not there. We assume it happens because the people do not perish. They survive. Or maybe they had water all along, and they were just clamoring for more and more than they really needed. Sometimes we act like that. Anyway, the text gives us some good lessons here, but the way it ends is really with a deep and existential question. Rather than describing the celebration of the water, it leaves us with a question. The question the Israelites apparently are still asking, is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us or not? It's really a question that all of us have to answer in our own lives. What is our relationship with God? How are we going to relate to God? Those are questions that we're asked to contemplate during the season of Lent. What is my life like in relationship with God or not in relationship with God? What role do I play in nurturing that relationship? It's all part of growing in faith to spend some time thinking deeply about these different kinds of things. John Wesley, founder of Methodism, was great at reminding us that recognizing that God is alive and that God loves us is only the beginning of the journey, that God has so much more in store for us after we recognize that God loves us, but so often we think that's it, or we think we've already jumped to the end, and in doing so, we miss so much of the Christian life, part of which the effort that God calls on us to exert in terms of growing our faith and growing in relationship. Sometimes we're called on to struggle, to suffer, to pull together in desperate circumstances. But when we jump to the end or think that we have done all there is to do by having a moment of saying, oh, Jesus, come into my life. There's so much more to the Christian life than just that experience. Wesley reminds us that's just the beginning. But maybe we're like the Israelites and sometimes we forget the journey and we just demand what we want. And we say we want it and we want it now. And if you're not going to go our way, well, maybe we'll stone you. It's not the best impulse. It's not the best of humanity. It's not the best of Christian faith when we react that way. To close, let me... Talk about the experiment that you may remember. This was one of those they did with children. You might remember it. They set it up where they brought a child, one at a time, children into a room, put them in a chair with a table in front of them. On the table was a marshmallow. They said, we don't want you to eat the marshmallow. If you can wait a few minutes, we'll let you eat two. And then the adult left the room and they watched the children to see what would happen. Well, they're trying to be obedient. The experimenter said they tried all kinds of things. Some kids got up and danced and twirled around. Some began to sing. Some began to tell themselves a story there in the room. They said one kid just leaned down and began to lick the table like maybe he could taste the marshmallow. But then of course some kids reached out as soon as the adult left and grabbed the marshmallow and gobbled it up. But that wasn't the whole test. They followed these children for decades, and you know what they found? Was that those who were able to, in whatever means, wait until the adult came back for the two marshmallows also showed more perseverance later in life. They showed greater ability to adapt to changing circumstances and more perseverance in difficult circumstances. The children who reached out and grabbed the marshmallows as a child they found were more impulsive throughout their lives. They got in more trouble. They got angry more often and more quickly and got frustrated with life in general in all kinds of ways. There's a very valuable lesson here about learning to wait. Learning to wait. It is a lesson that Lent tries to teach us. Lent invites us to exercise this valuable skill as we watch for God to meet us and lead us and care for us. May we in these days be those who wait for God, who look to God, believing that God will lead us in a life-affirming direction and that God can and will care for us and provide for us in all circumstances.